trying to start another site, and it utterly failed. Like, nobody came to faith. Which, at that point in my life, every time I'd done anything, like, all kinds of people had come to faith. And then it's just like, boom, nobody's coming to Jesus. It's not working. And I went into four and a half years of depression because I was failing every day. And I didn't even know what depression was. I just knew I was in a dark place and I felt like the presence of God was gone. And I couldn't hear anything from God except just wait. And of course, when, I, when he said to me, just wait, that just made me angry because I thought I waited long enough. And out of that experience, I learned that for my life, it has to be all him and no me. That I can't do anything except what he's doing. It was an experience that brought me to the end of myself. And from then until now, I don't like sit down and think, what do I want to do? Or where do I want to go? I look around and try to see what God is doing, and I just go do that. I do the good works that he's prepared for me, the things that he puts in front of me, and I follow them. So when we had our 40th anniversary at our church, I said to the, our whole church, you all need to understand something. The church that we have now is not the church we had in mind when we started. It is not the result of the, the great vision that Steve and my coworker Bill had at the front end. It is not. We had some ideas, and a couple of them we've managed to hang on to. But God had a lot of surprises. And in very many ways, God shaped our church. We didn't shape the church. God shaped the church. And part of that was this thing that she's asking about, about becoming a multiracial, multicultural church. I can remember back in the day when we first started the church, back in the 70s, people would say, don't you think the church should be more integrated? That was the phrase we used in those days. And I said, well, if you read the end of the book, like, that's where we're headed. <laughs> you know, if you ever crack open the book of Revelation, it's right there, all gathered in front of the throne of God for people from every tribe and nation and, and whatnot. So, like, that's where we're headed. But it looks to me like maybe that's only for heaven and not on earth. Because at that point, we were on the tail end of the civil rights movement. Several people had tried to start integrated churches, and they'd all blown up. And it was just a very divisive time. And I, how can I say this? That was very divisive. We were, it was a very racial group divided time. And then we've had a long period not like that. And then two years ago, it started up again for some reason. So we're kind of back where we started. <laughs> At any rate, I thought it was impossible. I thought it was impossible. Like, I, I, yeah, I'd, I'd love to see that happen, but I can't happen. And one day, 
about four or five years after we became a part of the vineyard and the Holy Spirit got a hold of us and he really did all his stuff on us and he did a lot of stuff on us. I mean, he, you know, shook us up and stirred us up and turned us upside down and changed everything. At any rate, one Saturday, I was watching a history documentary because that's what I do for fun, which tells you something else about me. And uh, I'm in the middle of watching this documentary, and God speaks to me just as clear as I've ever heard, just so clear. He said, I'm going to make your church a multiracial, multicultural church, and by the time I get done, there won't be a majority group. And I said, well, I don't know how you're going to do that, given what you have to start with. <laughs> because it was, we were all just a bunch of, you know, university-educated white people. Mostly, at that point. With a couple, you know, just one or two kind of non-white people who kind of snuck in somehow. As they do. <laughs> and I said, I said, I don't know how you're going to do that. Like... I have no experience with that. I, I don't, I didn't come from that background and I'm a white guy, like, did you notice? And, but I said, here's, here's if, I'll tell you what. If you bring the people, I will commit myself to two things, which are, I'm committing them to these two things because they're the only things I know to do in this situation. Because I really had no idea how this could happen. I said, I will commit to love them as best I can on their terms. And if you've ever been married, you learned that love on your own terms doesn't work. You have to love people on their terms. So I will commit to love people on their terms, of which, of course, we, and then I will commit to being a learner. I will be a learner with the people that you bring. I can do that. I don't know how to do this, but I can do those things. So if you bring them, that's what I'll do. And he started bringing them. And I started just listening to people and listening to their stories. And I mean like really listening. And then trying to figure out what it looked like to really love them. And the more I did that, the more he brought. And I kept doing that, and he just kept bringing more. And it really got challenging because I discovered that if I'm going to really love people, I have to figure out how their culture works because they're all coming in with different cultures. Well, it's not that easy to figure out other people's culture because you don't know what you don't know <laughs> until you do it wrong. You don't know what you don't know. And so it, it took a lot of work. You know, we had, we had to ask lots of questions. Well, well, how do you do this? And how do you do this? And why? And why do you think like that? And, you know, where did that come from? And, and so on. And I had to read books. Because, you know, sometimes people can't even tell you. Because most of the time we don't reflect on our own culture. You know, we, we never even think about our own culture until we're stuck in a place where, where nobody has it. Then we realize that we're different. But until that happens, we don't know that we're different. So, 
you know, and then, but God kept bringing in more new cultures faster than we could learn them. Like, you know, okay, we're starting to get a handle on African-Americans. And they're like, oh, there's all these Latinos. Well, that's a whole different thing. Oh, and they're not coming from just Mexico. Oh, no. Can't be that simple. They're, they're coming from, you know, 16 different Latin and South American countries, all of which have a different culture. <laughs> and then the Asian people started coming, and they're like, you're, you're way over your head now. And so that's what it's been for the last 30 years is just constantly trying to just learn and love, essentially. And God brought the people. We didn't ever do anything specifically to bring those people. Um, God brought the people, and we just tried to keep up with it as best we could. You know, um, about 12 years ago, we got into this new building, and we were, had been there a couple of months, and all of a sudden, people started calling us up and saying, what time is your Spanish service? Well, we didn't have a Spanish service. And there was one, and then there was another one, and there was another one, and before three weeks went by, there were like 28. And the receptionist was keeping hashtags at the front desk. As, long, as well as a Spanish-English script so she could talk to people who were calling and, and asking in Spanish, what time is your Spanish service? And I thought, after about number 25, I thought, I may be a little slow here, but I think God's trying to tell us something. <laughs> like, we need to start a Spanish service. So I thought, well, what do I need to start a Spanish service? Ah, I need two leaders who speak Spanish. So I thought, who do we have that speaks Spanish? And I thought of two guys in our church that were leaders, like small group leaders that spoke Spanish. So I went to them and said, hey guys, would you like to try an experiment? You know, we've got all these people that are calling and saying, what time is your Spanish service? Let's try a one-year experiment. And of course they believed me. <laughs> that it was gonna be a one-year experiment. I've gotten so many people in deep with the one-year experiment line. Have you tried that one? <laughs> That's a pastor trick, if there ever was one, right? That's a pastor trick, right there. One-year experiment. Twelve years later, they're still doing it. <laughs> anyway, I say, let's try one year, and, and you guys start this, you know, see if you guys can start a Spanish service, which means, like, they got to figure out worship, and they got to preach the sermons. The whole, like, there's all kind of things they got to do to make it happen in Spanish. But I, and I thought, well, you know, I don't know if this is going to work. But it'll be good anyway because at least those two guys, just from the effort of, like, having to prepare sermons and get ready for worship, they'll grow. You know, and my goal is that all the people in my church will keep growing. And developing so even if the, even if it fails of course it didn't fail they just more of them kept coming now there's like 150 and they're sitting in each other's laps because we can't find a big enough place to put them so that happened and so it's sort it, it's sort of like one of our sites now a Spanish speaking one and Then we started learning that 
if you're really going to be multiracial and multicultural, then um, that has to be reflected in how you do things. Like, it's not truly love if they all come, but everything that happens in the church is my way and my culture. Right? I mean, this, if, you, if you just stop and think for a second, you realize, of course. Like, so we developed the rule, nobody gets to be on home base all the time. Which is kind of a sports analogy, but it's, it means, you know, nobody gets it their way all the time. Everybody has to do it somebody else's way some of the time. And we tell everybody when they're coming to church, this is a multicultural church. So you... It's not going to be one cultural way all the time. From Sunday to Sunday, it's going to be different. It'll be different kinds of music and different kinds of praying and different kinds of other things. It's not going to be the same all the time. And you're not supposed to just sit there waiting for your way to come around. You know, you're supposed to stretch yourself and be a learner to learn other people's way. So we started having to incorporate other kinds of music. You know, Latin-flavored music and gospel-flavored music and spirituals and other kinds of music and other kinds of praying. We, we started getting a whole bunch of black African immigrants. And you also get lots of black African immigrants here. Well, they don't pray like white people. Have you figured that out? They don't pray like white people. <laughs> they don't pray like white people. When, like, so if we're having a prayer meeting with them, their way of praying is they all pray out loud at once as fast as they can. So sometimes I, I, I will stand up and say, okay, we're all going to pray together, but we're going to pray African style today. And I'll tell you, the white people are just complete rubbish. <laughs> at praying that way, but that's all right. Because nobody gets to have it their way all the time. And, you know, it's, I, I, my feeling is we actually need each other to become complete disciples. That every culture has some hidden gem that's from God that we all need. And we can only get it by coming together and learning from each other and stretching ourselves. So, you know, in this process, I discovered, like, I really like black gospel music and the even older stuff, the old slave spirituals are some of my favorite worship songs because they touch parts of my heart that nothing else does. I don't know how to explain it, but it just, there's a thing of the music of the oppressed and that is born out of suffering that has power to reach things inside that some of the other stuff just doesn't do. You know, and I've just come to love it. I just love it. You know, sort of like, 
and in fact, honestly, sort of my old, sort of what they call, they call my music, music I did when I was young, folk music. It's folk music to them. And I've actually gotten bored with that now because I've gotten so much, had so much fun with the other bits. You know, so it's been this wonderful adventure, actually. And uh, when the whole world is kind of retreating back behind walls, right? That's, that's what's happening in one way or another, everywhere, everywhere. You know, for you, it looks like Brexit. For us, it looks like Trump. But it's all the same stuff, right? It's all, it's all this putting about walls between people. It's all about putting walls between people. Like, it is really a wonderful thing to be a people shining a light to say, that's not God's way. And that's not the way it has to be. There's a better way. And now I could preach a sermon and take an offering, but I'll resist. <laughs> <laughs> so, did that answer your question? Somebody else? That guy looks like he has a question. The failures are almost too numerous to count. <laughs> the biggest thing I've learned along the way is that the biggest mistake is not taking the chance of failing or not letting other people have the chance of failing. Failing is how we grow. Failing is how we change. Failing is how we go deeper. And, you know, did you, did you know that basically walking is just nothing more than controlled falling? And if you never let your little kids fall, they would never learn how to walk. So, failure is not something actually to be afraid about. At all. Not trying is the thing to be afraid about. That's one of the things I've learned. I thought everything had to be perfect for the first eight years of ministry, and I made life miserable for myself and everybody else. I'm now at year 43, and this is what I can tell you the perfect Sunday is never coming. The perfect Sunday is never coming. It's never going to be perfect. There's, there's always going to be somebody sick at a very inconvenient moment. There's always going to be a volunteer that forgot they were on the rota. There's always going to be a something at the bat, that desk back there that doesn't work the way it worked 10 minutes before. <laughs> you know, like we tell them, test it beforehand. They do test it beforehand. And it still goes wonky right when you're at the crucial. It, it's always going to be something. There's always going to be a couple of people that are struggling to get along. 
there's always going to be somebody who's just having some tough stuff in life. It's just, there's, it, there's, it's just always going to be like that. And what I tell my leaders is this, and this is really important for them and it's important for you. Ultimately, the success of your church doesn't depend on doing everything right. It's good to try to do well. It's good to not be lazy. It's good to think it through. But ultimately, in the end, it's not actually about doing everything right. It's about doing the right things. And that's something completely different. If you do the right things, if you love the people that God brings through the door, if you serve the poor, if you pray, if you um, learn the word of God and preach the word of God, those are the right things. And if you do that for long enough, it will bear a harvest. You don't have to go off to the, you know, the latest American guru conference to find the magic bullet. Just keep doing the right things, which you already know are the right things. And they may not even be that perfectly done. It won't matter. You know, it's kind of like the talk I give to couples to getting married. You know, they're coming up to the wedding, this huge event. They get so tense, you know, about things nobody cares about, like whether the groomsmen wear their flowers in the right spot, you know, or whatever, you know, whether the dress has this frill on it or doesn't, you know, and I say, nobody except your crazy aunt cares about any of that stuff. As long as you show up and I show up, you're going to be just as married the next day as anybody else. It could all go completely wrong. As long as we're in the same room together, you're going to be married at the end of the day. You know, it's just sort of like, don't get so hung up on the little stuff. Like, just do the big stuff. And you'll be all right. And it's kind of like that in ministry, too. You know, keep saying yes. Like, like I said, like I, don't, I, I just keep saying yes to God. And he brings stuff. I don't have to go looking. I just keep saying yes. And if you do that, things will happen. And you'll have a lot of fun. And you won't get burned out. What you want to learn how to do, ministry-wise, as leaders, is learn how to sail and stop rowing. Do you understand what I mean? Learn how to sail and stop rowing. Put your sail up and let the power of the Spirit move you. Throw those oars away. <laughs> Where you're like full and trying to make it happen. Like that's what burns you out. Um, get rid of that stuff. That was a good question. Somebody else. We have many arguments, <laughs> God and I. We have lots of arguments. I often say no first. There's, it's not that easy to say no to God, though, and stick to it. Ask Jonah how that goes. You know, he always wins in the end. 
But we do, I, there's a lot of complaining and howling sometimes. You know, like, I disagree. I don't like the way you're doing things. <laughs> you know, I grew up in the church. I grew up in a Pentecostal church. My dad was a Pentecostal pastor. My grandfather was a Pentecostal pastor. That meant that a commitment was going to church three times a week. Like modern people have not the slightest idea what commitment means. They think they go two Sundays a month and that's commitment. I'm thinking, my gosh, we did that on one week. And that wasn't even, ha that, we weren't even done with a week's commitment. We had to go to church three times a week. We got, I got saved, of course, hundreds of times. You can always tell who came from a Pentecostal background because they're the ones that laugh when I say that. <laughs> you did it too, didn't you? <laughs> you got saved hundreds of times too. And <laughs> and you know what? Of course, like with everybody who grows up in a Christian family, there comes a point where you have to decide your faith for yourself. And so when I was 17, I was at that point. I knew that the next year I was going off to uni, and I was going far off to unity. And, and uh, so I thought, when I go to uni, I can be any kind of person I want to be. So what kind of person do I want to be? And I didn't tell anybody because I'm an introvert. Introverts don't tell people what they're thinking about until it's all worked out. So I wasn't talking to anybody, but uh, I was thinking about like what kind of person do I want to be, and I was just kind of watching people, and I was thinking about when I go to uni, what do I want to do, and when I get out of uni and I get a job, what, what kind of person do I want to be then, and when I have a family and all that, you know, what kind of person do I want to be then, when I get old, what kind of person do I want to be, and as I thought about this, and just kind of looked around at the people around me for about nine months. It just seemed to me that the people who followed Jesus just lived better. They just had better lives. And so I said, okay, that's what I want to do. But I thought, if I'm going to like spend the rest of my life following Jesus... No more halfway. No more sort of a little bit follow Jesus. I'm like, I, if I'm going to do my whole life this, then let's go all out. So I said to God, here and now, I'm committing my whole life to you. And I want to make an agreement with you that from now on, what's going to happen in my life is going to be what you want, not what I want. Even when I ask for something else. And he has been very faithful to his side of the <laughs> bargain. <laughs> He's brought a lot of things that weren't what I was asking for or expecting. And sometimes I've objected and argued and didn't like it. Sometimes I told him, you got the wrong person. During that Four, year, four and a half years of depression and in a failing church plant. You know what was going on? God was speaking to me and saying, I want to use you to plant hundreds of churches. And I was saying to him, 
uh, did you notice like this one's not working? You know, like you got the wrong person. Like you, like, you know, like you need to find somebody who's extroverted and charismatic and good looking and cool. I never could figure out cool. And, and uh, you just got the wrong person. But, you know, he, it wouldn't go away. But in the end, when I finally said, yes, okay, I'll do it, then he showed me how, that I didn't have to do it all myself. That was great. Then we ended up leading the church planning task force for Vineyard USA, and then over 25 years, we planted 750 churches. So we did it. It happened. But I had to say yes first. So all of which is to say, I think it's a healthy thing to have a real enough relationship with God that you have arguments. Well, I encourage people in our church, like, if you want to have intimacy with God, you have to start by being real. And if being real is a little yelling and screaming, well, yell and scream. He can take it. Um, you got to start there. But do understand that he will sometimes answer back. Um, reminds me, in the early years of the vineyard, we had, we, were, we had discovered the John Wimber healing tapes. I, I don't know, probably none of you have seen these. But back in the very early days, he had this cassette tape series, four volumes on healing with weird names. Like, you know, one was, first one was kind of obvious, Introduction to Healing Ministry or something, but then he's got one called Categories and Operatives. You know what I'm talking, have you seen it? Have you heard it? It is the best stuff ever done. And he never did it again. I don't know why. But we discovered that, and so we got some, a secret group of stable people Because we still weren't too sure about this thing. We wanted stable people. Stable people mean we didn't invite, you know, some people always like the last thing they heard. You, you know those people? Whatever the last thing they heard was, that's what they like. We didn't invite them to this group. We wanted people that were harder to convince. You know, people who had a little big city skepticism. We invited, and that were stable, not emotional, like that were going to use their brains to respond. And so we were listening to those tapes, and one of the first things we heard was that John Wember, they prayed for the sick for 10 months, and nobody got healed for 10 months, and the people who were praying got sick. And then after said, well, maybe there's like some quota or something you have to do. <laughs> to like get started in this thing. So let's make a pact. Let's make a pact that we're gonna offer to pray for every sick person we meet, wherever and whenever. <laughs> oh my gosh. We made that pact, and all of a sudden there's like sick people everywhere. <laughs> like, you're in the line at the supermarket, and there's a person with a headache in front of you, and it's just like you couldn't get to anything on time, and that's a big deal for me because I, I can't stand being late for anything. 
but you're like praying for people all the time. It's just like there's sick people. And one day I'm driving my car late to a church meeting, and there's some guy hobbling down the street on crutches. And I just said, that's it. I'm done. I'm not doing it. I said, and I started yelling at God, like, what's with all these sick people? There's sick people everywhere. Like, this is America. <laughs> like, what's with all these sick people? Where'd they come from? And he said, they've been there all along. You just didn't want to see them. <laughs> that one got me. So that's how, you know, that's how my arguments with God often go. <laughs> you know, I yell and scream, and then he, like, sticks the dagger in. <laughs> but it always ends up great because his way is always better. But for some reason, I don't always, I'm a little slow at seeing it. Does that answer your question? Do you want to ask a follow-up? How do you know? <laughs> Your face just had follow-up all over it. Oh, yeah, let me tell you a good one. A step of faith that I was really unsure of. So, <laughs> we, uh, we met in like 25 different venues as a church. And we kept growing and growing. We needed something bigger and something more permanent. And there was this big old... Bell and Howell Building Complex, which was the old telephone company, and in the one corner of the city, kind of a semi-industrial, light industrial area kind of a thing, and they had multiple buildings on this land, and they, they were going to sell it all. And so we wanted to get one of the buildings. And uh, so you know, there was all this back and forth, and we were trying to see what was going to happen. And, and uh, at one point, we decided we need to, like, pray around that property. And so we had, like, what the Pentecostals would have called, like, a Jericho march, where we all got out there. And this is when my kids were, like, in the babies, baby prams, you know, the whatnot. They were all little. And we got the whole church out there, and we marched around that property, praying for God to give it to us. And everybody's looking at us like, what are those people doing? And at the end, um, the city took it, got the whole, almost the whole piece, and... Uh, Turned it into a shopping mall, sh shopping center, and uh, they left two buildings at the back, which uh, Sure Microphone Company took. And so, like, we were squeezed out. We were just like their fifth backup. 
And I thought, that is about the stupidest thing we have ever done. Marching around those buildings. Like, that is like the stupidest, weirdest thing we ever did. Why did we do that? That did not work. I was like so embarrassed. I was like, I can't believe I let, people, I let them talk me in doing that. Like, I'm an educated man. So, 10 years later, having gone through all ups and downs with our local council, going to court, we'd bought another building somewhere else, and we finally, after this long deal, won the right to use this other building, which was a smaller, a small building for a church. And as we're leaving the final courtroom, the city official who had been most vehemently opposed to our use of that building turned to us and said, there's a building up for sale in my part of the city. Why don't you sell this building and buy that one? The building that we sold, that we had just finished fighting over, was 30,000 square feet. The one she suggested that we buy was 90,000 square feet with 600 car parking spaces. And would you like to know where it was? <laughs> yes, indeedy, it was one of those buildings that we marched around 10 years earlier. And that's the building we're in right now. So. I really think God had a big laugh. <laughs> I think a lot of times, hey, and the angels just have a lot of fun. Like, watch this. It's kind of, you know, back in the 90s, you know the Toronto, any of you around during the Toronto times? It was nuts. It was just nuts. You know, and it just started all on one Sunday. Like, boom. You know, so the same weekend it started in Toronto, it hit about a dozen other major churches, including mine. It's just like all of a sudden there's all this power, all these people getting infected. And I started, you know, so we thought like we've, we've got to like stay balanced. So we started a renewal meeting at this Methodist church on Sunday nights and said, we'll do all the renewal stuff over there. And then we got real theological on Bible on Sunday morning and tried to like kind of keep the lid on a little bit. But of course it still was just weird as all get out. People falling and laughing and shaking and whatnot. Nobody wanted to bring any of their friends and family to church because you never knew what was going to happen. So one Sunday, this, there was one guy in the church. He was a seminarian who is, people had prayed for him dozens and dozens of times, and he was a rock. No matter how, who prayed for him, no matter how many times, he didn't shake, he didn't cry, he didn't fall, he didn't do anything weird. Nothing ever happened to Paul. He was always reliably normal. So one Sunday, somebody's bringing their mother-in-law, and so they said, we're going to sit behind Paul because we know we can count on Paul not to do anything weird. And I think God heard it and said, watch this. <laughs> so that Sunday, with their mother in tow, sitting right behind Paul, 
in the middle of the worship when nothing is happening to anybody else in the room. Nothing. Paul gets blasted with the Spirit, starts laughing uncontrollably, falls over onto the floor, works his way out to the aisle, and starts rolling up and down the aisle, laughing hysterically in front of their mother. And I think Jesus and the angels were just having a hoot. (laughs) They thought they were going to be safe. You never know. Another question. We're having fun. Chris. Oh, that's a great question. So, first of all, you know, there's... Lots of levels of leadership, and there's different kinds of leaders. It's, it's important to kind of be aware of that. So you have to, you, you know, like what you're looking for, if you're looking for somebody who's going to be a senior pastor of a church, it's not necessarily what you're looking for when you're looking for somebody to head up the video, audio-visual team. They're both leadership, but it's different in some ways. But the beginning, and I, and I think you can start recognizing leadership on people when they're 11, actually. And the beginning is just watch them and watch the people around them. John Wimmer used to say, if you want to know if you're a leader, look over your shoulder see if anybody's following. If you get any group of teenagers, they go in, they go in packs, you know. They go in packs. Like they all, they all decide well, we're all going to do this together. We're gonna do, although it's social media and the kind of the phone is changing this a little bit. It's harder to see. But you can spot the leaders when they're 11. Or even you can spot leaders by the questions they ask. You know, people who don't have a leadership gift ask personal questions. How does this affect me? People with leadership gifts on them, they ask general questions, strategy questions. How does this affect the group? How does this affect the future? What, where are we going? Values questions. The truth of the matter is people who aren't called into leadership never ask those questions. So I'm always listening for who's asking those questions. And they might be a little edgy if they're young in the way they ask the questions. That doesn't matter because I found out who they are and I'm going to have the last laugh because, you know, I'm, I'm going to develop that leadership gift. I look for people who have the ability to kind of see a few steps ahead and a predisposition to take personal action. Okay, so I'm going through the Atlanta airport some years ago i am got to change planes, and there's a little bit of time, so I want to get some food. And I'm standing in this queue of people in front of this place where you get food. And then you get your food, and you go over, and there's a few tables on the side where you could sit and eat your food. And there's a family in front of me of 
a father and three kids. And one of the kids, he looks to be about eight years old, all of a sudden pipes up to his dad and says, Dad, I'm going to go over and sit in one of those tables so we'll have a table for our family when we get our food because there are more people in this queue than there are tables. And I thought, aha, uh-huh, future church planner right there, eight years old. <laughs> because that kid had the ability to look at the queue, to look at the tables, to anticipate a future problem, and the predisposition to take personal action. I'm going to do this. Only leaders do that. So I'm looking for those kind of people in terms of gifting. And then, of course, you're looking for character and commitment. Um, Some people are leaders, but they're not actually available to you because God has them leading somewhere else. They're leading in business or they're leading in academia or something else, and they're actually not available to you for leadership. They're leaders, and they're important in the church. They have a ministry. It just happens to be out in the world. You know, and so they, they're great to have in your church, but they don't have enough time to actually be a leader. So they're, they're leaders, but they're not available. They're taken for something else. Um, you know, you look for character, people who can resolve a conflict and work with other people and compromise and who can tell the truth and admit when they're wrong and be teachable. And if they can't do those things, then it, it's not going to work. Because everything we do is in teams in the church. And so you can't be a Lone Ranger type leader. So we start with that. And then we just try things out. Just try people a little at a time. A lot of people can lead, but they're afraid to lead. So you have to sneak up on them. Yeah, you do. That's how it has to work. I've got my. I have a woman, a young woman who looks. She's she's actually like forty, but she looks like she's sixteen, and she heads up my small groups ministry. We have like seventy small groups, and all the time people are going into meetings with her, and they'll even say, "I know she's going to ask me to lead a small group, and I'm going to say no." And they come out having said yes. She sneaks up on them every time. She is the best recruiter you've ever seen because they don't see it coming. If they have the gifting and the character's not there, I ignore them. And if they have a lot of gifting and the character's not there, I try to make them mad so they'll leave the church. (laughs) 
Usually works. <laughs> All the more reason to make them leave, or you will be a much smaller church. The more gifting they have, the more dangerous they are. You know, some people have bad character, but they don't have that much gifting. They're not a threat. So you can leave them alone and see if they learn. You know, if they're 19, you know, sometimes it's it really all that needs to happen is just let them get in there and then get kicked around a little bit, and they'll, they'll get over it. But if they're 53 and they're still unteachable, you know, you've managed to get through that much of life and you still can't learn anything, like, what are we going to do? Like, then it's completely in God's hands because he's the only one that has anything powerful enough to, to change that person because it's going to take a lot of pain for them to come to a point, a point of genuine change in dealing with their character. You know, 19-year-olds are still in the process of formation, so you, know, you can kind of work with that a little bit. So, but if they've got, you know, bad character, it's sort of like, I just don't spend much time there. Like, I'll choose somebody of less gifting but good character every time if I have to choose. You know, um, you know, one of the things John Weber used to say to us all the time, he says, feed what you want and starve what you don't want in your church. And you feed and you start by what you pay attention to and what you put the spotlight on. So what you want to do is pay attention to and put the spotlight on your true blue great people. And there always are. And the danger is you get one cranky person who's got a character problem and you spend your whole life messing with them while you're ignoring the people that actually make this whole thing work. And it's, it's a trick of the, of the evil one to distract you. Like, get rid of them. Don't waste your time trying to save the unsavable. And focus on the good ones. I, remember, I heard somebody once ask John Wimber, he said, how do you motivate people? He says, I don't. I just work with motivated people. Now, I'd add an asterisk to that. I'd say, yes, find motivated people and work with them, and don't be the kind of leader that demotivates people. <laughs> so... We got time for maybe one more question. We can go anywhere, any direction you like. Sorry. What am I going to do when I retire? Oh, no.
I actually have a pretty good idea. I'm going to do two things when I retire, at least initially. Um, because in three years I'm going to retire. My successor is coming to our church in June, this June. We're going to lead together for three years, and then he's going to take it. And when I retire, I'm going to stop running the machine. Those of you who are senior pastors will understand what I mean. You know, there's a, you're, there's a lot of running the machine stuff in the deal. I'm not going to do any of that anymore, which is why I'm not going to plant another church. Like, when I'm trying to get away from running the machine, why would I want to build another one? But I'm going to do this, what I'm doing right now. And it's already happening. It's increasing. I'm getting requests more and more all the time to come around and train leaders and train pastors. And I love doing that. And so I'm going to do that. And then I'm going to go to as many events as possible involving my eight grandchildren. And that will probably just pretty much fill up my life, I think. That's my plan. All right. Well, you know, let me just say one more thing there. Just a freebie. Great churches are built by long pastorates. By people who go in and stay a long time. And there are going to be points when you want to panic or when you want to run. There are a thousand Mondays I wanted to quit. There's going to be seasons that are tough. About five, between like 10 years ago and five years ago, I went through like a four-year period of not being able to hear God, a wilderness experience. All the ministry kept going great. Every, it was anointed, da-da-da, but for myself, no hearing God. It just like went silent, nothing in the wilderness. The, you know, the wilderness is also part of the work of the Holy Spirit. If you read the Gospels, you go in the wilderness where you only hear the voice of the devil and God tests whether you will be faithful to what you've heard from him before or not. And so, you know, you want to have great churches, like get in there and stay. And staying means you have to grow and you have to change and you have to struggle. But that's the point. That's the deal. He's trying to get you ready for ruling and reigning with Christ. So, you know, don't run. Don't run. Take care of yourself. And don't do stupid things. All right. <laughs>